0: When God began creating heaven and earth, the earth was void and desolate. There was darkness on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. Thus unfolds the most revolutionary as well as the most influential account of creation in the history of the human spirit. So begins the preface to the Quarantanach Magerman edition, this preface penned by the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory a decade in development, the new Koran Tanakh offers an eloquent, faithful, and masterful translation of the Torah, prophets, and writings with the renowned Koran Hebrew text. Join us as we speak with Rabbi Ruven Ziegler, Editor-in-Chief, and Jessica Sachs, Translation Team Manager and Senior Translator for the Koran Tanakh. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Rabbi Ruvain Ziegler is chairman of the editorial board at Korin Publishers Jerusalem, director of research at the Torahs Horav Foundation, and founder and editor-in-chief of Yeshivat Haratzion's renowned Israel Koshitsky virtual Beit Midrash. Aside from numerous articles, he is the author of Majesty and Humility, The Thought of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Jessica Sachs, niece of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, is senior translator for Korin Publishers. Rabbi Ruvain and Jessica, welcome to New Books in Jewish
1: Studies. Glad to be here.
0: Now, the first lines of the preface to the new Koran Tanakh reads, quote, to undertake a new English translation requires chutzpah and humility in equal measure, but neither more than yirat shemaim, fear and trembling before God, End quote. Rabbi Ruvain, as editor-in-chief, tell us about this Koren Tanakh, Hebrew-English translation, about the work involved, and, and why another translation?
1: Well, that, that gets to the question of the chutzpah, of undertaking <laughs> new uh, translation. Um, first of all, the, the process w- was nearly a decade, and it involved dozens of people uh, from the translation team headed by Jessica to reviewing scholars, to footnote scholars, to literary editors. Jessica was also one of our two literary editors. Um, And uh, proofreaders, and uh, cartographers, and uh, design, and typesetting. It was just, it was a huge, huge project. So you, so it's a good question. Why undertake such a crazy thing? Especially in something that's been translated, (laughs) not just once or twice, but dozens and dozens of times. Um, So I think that we were trying to attain um, two goals. Jessica, you can feel free to add. Uh, We spent a lot of time, Jessica and I, and then obviously we consulted with Rabbi Sachs just trying to define the goals. What are we trying to do here? So we wanted to present uh, a faithful Orthodox Jewish perspective uh, based both in the Jewish interpretive tradition, um, especially the tradition of the Pashtanim, of those who had a, a more... Uh, um literal contextual understanding, um, as opposed to those who were more homiletical, uh, the Darshanim, um, and we at the same time wanted to be informed by all the findings of modern scholarship, so that was one goal. Um, the second is that we wanted to produce something beautiful, not just beautiful in terms of the packaging and the design, but mainly a beautiful translation. And what you have in most Bible translations is they're translated by scholars. Scholars tend towards the literal and the prose is often and the poetry is often kind of clunky because they're trying to be very, very literal. Um, We wanted something that would read beautifully. Like even if you don't know the Hebrew, you could just read the English and the prose would be majestic and absorbing and the poetry would be soaring and would be beautiful. So we did the opposite of what most translators do. We started off with a team headed by Jessica of experienced literary translators, all of whom were very knowledgeable in terms of uh, their Jewish, their Judaic knowledge. And then they were guided by a team of scholars. In other words, their work was, they got a bibliography from our, from our scholars to help prepare them. And, but they had free reign as literary translators to do the most beautiful job they could. And then the the scholars, the reviewing scholars came in and reined them in when they took too many liberties. And there was a very fruitful dialogue. It's not like the scholars sent in their comments and that was it. No, then there would be back and forth. There would be this ping pong going back and forth. And then when when they would come to agreement, then the literary editor would step in. And then the literary editor and the scholar and the translator would have dialogue. in the end, uh, the, the, a lot of the decisions were left to the to the translators because their name is on it. Um, but still, we had our we could consult uh, Rabbi Sachs, we could consult Rabbi Weinreb, who was also uh, a consulting rabbinic scholar uh, and a translator. You know, in, so in terms of, I guess, in uh, in the world of Bible translation, they talk about uh, formal versus functional equivalence. Uh, or you could say in layman's terms, you know, literal versus literary. So we definitely wanted to lean in the direction of the literary. Uh, and given these goals, you can understand why we needed chutzpah and humility and Yirat Shemaim. The, the chutzpah was uh, exactly what you said. Why, why undertake such a huge project and why retranslate the book? Uh, so we had to have a little bit of chutzpah. We had to have a lot of humility uh because uh we we had to try to absorb you know 3,000 years of uh, Jewish interpretive tradition uh we had to keep ourselves open to the truth that we can find within uh contemporary academic scholarship uh, and uh, when you're translating what you view uh, as you know when you're when you're trying to be a conduit to bring the Word of God to an, to a new audience, um, you need a lot of humility to do that and that, connects to why we needed Yirat Shamain, why do we need it to be God fearing, given that we relate to the, given that we're an Orthodox Jewish publisher and we relate to the Bible as the Word of God and, you know, words spoken with with divine inspiration. So this is the highest of high-stakes projects. You know, very often when we we publish a lot of other books under our Magid imprint and other under our Tobi imprint. And inevitably there are, you know, there will be a mistake in a book. So we say, okay, there's a mistake. It's not the Bible. But this time it actually was the Bible. So, so yeah, so we needed to have a lot of uh, humility and, and uh, fear of God. How many years did this take? Jessica, what was about eight years? Oh, well,
2: I, I, we began working on it as a Tanakh project um, about six or seven years ago, but parts of it had already been translated for the liturgical books we brought out. So altogether, 10 or 15.
1: Yeah.
0: The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory provided the English translation for the Pentateuch as well as for many of the Psalms. Jessica, you were not only a translation team manager and senior translator, but Rabbi Sachs's niece. Would you tell us about Jonathan Sachs' life and legacy?
2: Yeah, well, he he grew up in, um, well, Obviously, I would think of it as a very average, normal uh, English-Jewish um, household, but I, I think, I think uh, one could call it a fairly average um, Anglo-Jewish household. That's to say that his parents um, did not have a huge amount of Jewish education and that throughout their lives was a source of, uh, of sadness for both of them. My grandfather had left school at 14 to go and work in the rag trade. He pursued his education as much as he could, uh, you know, in the evenings and so on. And they placed a very high value on on learning, culture, and they they really wanted their their sons to go further. And they they thankfully lived in a time where in England that was very that was very possible because uh, you know if if a child had. Uh, you know natural ability and a lot of motivation and a, a family that was supporting his education then then the government provided a very good education and so it was was not an unusual story that this that this uh, you know east end jew who was was a refu- economic refugee i suppose had four children and they all went to Cambridge and two of them studied philosophy that was in itself not an unusual story for the time and the community but his 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 personal life path took a turn in as he tells it in 1967 that the six-day war broke out and it was a very formative experience for him and a lot of his contemporaries who would you know always supported Israel you know had family some family history actually in Israel and family uh, family in Israel but and supported you know donated money to plant trees but it was not something that they felt was going di- to direct their lives and suddenly in 1967 this war broke out the, the these uh, you know huge armies were coming with the intent to drive Israel into the sea and it 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 took this um english jewish students by surprise how this you know existential terror you know really caught them up in it and they were all going and praying and it it, it raised for him uh, many questions about what this jewish identity is that has so much deeper a hold on him than he had been aware and that set him on his journey where he went to meet the sort of great rabbis of, of that time and uh, Really changed his life course and became a rabbi, and uh, became a trainer of rabbis. And ultimately, 1991, I think, became chief rabbi. Um, And he was chief rabbi of the United um, Hebrew Congregations, which is in in England is very much the broad synagogue. I think this is different from the American Jewish community, where perhaps the default synagogue to go to will not be an Orthodox one, particularly. But in England. The, the, the your sort of local orthodox synagogue is where you go whether you're um somebody with a you know a yeshiva strong yeshiva education is living a very orthodox life or whether you're have a much more casual relationship with it or come for a, different different reasons and don't live such a uh, you know such a punctiliously uh religious life outside so it's a very very broad uh, spectrum but of course you know as i've described that you know that uh, extended family contains that whole spectrum, so he was not phased uh, by that and he and he spoke to that whole broad audience, sort of not never patronizing, never scolding, never trying to change people, but you know I think he very much believed that you don 't go for the lowest common denominator because what unites us is that is the highest you know the highest um, messages and and questions of the Bible are really are the ones that are. we all have to deal with across the jewish world and other traditions outside the traditions you know how to build a just society how to live together with people who are different from us how to build our personal relationships and society relationships so this was this was uh, how we addressed the jewish community Uh, you had these weekly um, readings of the of the of the the weekly scriptural reading of Parashat Shavua who would send out to very wide um, you know many many people subscribed to his weekly uh, writings which would take you know maybe some subtlety in the text or some um, rabbinic uh, question around the text and but which and showed how it addressed the fundamental questions that we all have in common and Bring it into conversation with philosophy, psychology, you know, economic theory, and and always, as as Ruben described in this very um, very beautiful, dignified, and also very clear language, Uh, and at the same time as addressing this wide Jewish audience, he was also being turned to outside the Jewish world. You know, the BBC would broadcast. Be asked to to speak and address issues representing not just the Jewish tradition, but traditions and and uh, moral thought in general. Because he, he was very very strong believer in the importance of religion in general. And he wanted Jews to be proud Jews. He wanted Christians to be cr- proud Christians. And Muslims to be proud Muslims. And Sikhs to be proud Sikhs. Because you really felt that this. Uh, you know, separately and together, we have a very important uh, voice and, and role to play, which we need to sort of take ownership of and, and bring bring to the benefit of the world. So that that was um, that that was, I think, speaks of his of his of his project. You know, translation was a very small part of what he did for, from his point of view, I think, but it, it had a it had a big importance for the people who use. Who use this translation, and, and, and will use.
0: I had read recently in one of Rebbe Schneerson's biographies that the Rebbe had an influence on Jonathan Sachs. Was that so?
2: Yes, he cites he cites the Rebbe as as that m- major influence that really changed his course when he was when he was a student traveling around America, meeting many rabbis. He also mentioned Rabbi Soloveitchik as, as a very influential one, but. He tells of how he sat with the Rebbe and uh, and asked all his questions, and then the Rebbe started asking him questions. And what are you doing to to um, to uh, enhance Jewish life in the place where you are? What, are? what are you doing? You know, this is what you must do. You know, I think he received his mission in a way from 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 the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So,
0: what else makes this edition of the Tanakh special?
1: Uh I'll get to that question in a second. I just sure. wanted to add one point about Rabbi Sachs. He devoted about 5 years which turned out unfortunately to be the last 5 years of his life to working on this project. And he blo- and he had invitations coming in from all over the world, you know, to speak to to be on uh, you know committees and councils and advise and th- and he blocked off time to work on this and I think one of the reasons it was so important to him um it you know It may be obvious, let's say, to to Christians that a religious philosophy should be derived from the Bible. But traditionally, if you look at most Jewish philosophers, they derive their philosophy mostly from rabbinic writings, from the Talmud, the Midrash, and later writings. Uh, And uh, in the, I'd say, in the past 200 years, there's been a return to regarding the Bible as a as a wellspring of of Jewish thought, and to if you see, for example, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, um, his a lot of his thought really is biblically based. And Rabbi Sachs, it's very striking that he really is. He brings in obviously the Talmud and the Midrash and rabbinic writings, but he's very heavily based. Most of his deep philosophical destruction uh, discussions are constructed around a biblical narrative. And he really felt that that was what can speak to people today. It can be a source for Jewish philosophy. It can be a bridge between communities. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that, that he felt it was so important. He was so deeply connected to the Bible as a thinker that, uh, that he, he was very, he was very committed to putting out this new edition. Um, so not to get to your question, sorry about that. Um, so uh, there's there's a lot of features uh, in the in the new in the new uh, edition. I mean, it comes in different sizes and uh, it comes in in three different editions: uh, a Hebrew-English, an English-only, and then an expanded Hebrew-English, which I'll speak about in a minute. That one hasn't gone to print yet. Um, but uh, one of the things, so obviously, the thing that that we had to put the most effort into is the translation and getting that right. Um, but we've spoken about that a little bit. Um, some of the other things, I mean, first of all, it's just beautiful in terms of just the layout, the fonts, the, the look of the page, you know, the binding, the covers, etc. Um, the, you know, the thumb tabs, like in a dictionary, you know, uh, I don't in Jewish Bibles don't usually have that, but it's just, it's a useful thing. Uh, some, some of we may recall what a dictionary is before you would go to dictionary.com. Um, it, uh, one of, the, one of the, the features that I personally like the most about, about this, uh, before I get to all the material in the back, we have appendices, which I'll speak about in a minute. And in the different editions, they're between 60 to 160 to 900 pages uh, in the three different editions. But uh, the, just the layout of the, of the English page, the Hebrew page, traditionally is, is, has divisions, has line breaks in certain traditional places, but it's not the way we format things today. Like if you read a novel, you have paragraphs, you have dialogue form, as you know, dialogue appears in line by line. Uh, poetry will appear with line breaks and stitches and indentations. And so just looking at a page of, of an English book, you see what's prose, what's dialogue and what's poetry. Um, so in the Hebrew English edition, if we didn't want it to be 3,000 pages, we, we had to keep, you know, we, it's 2,000 pages, 1,000 Hebrew, 1,000 English. And the English is formatted just like the Hebrew with large blocks of text with the traditional breaks. But in the English only and in the expanded four volume edition, um, we formatted it uh, like a contemporary book uh, with paragraphs and dialogue and poetry. And that, that in itself makes it so much more accessible. In terms of the material in the back, Koran's been putting out Tanakhs uh, for 60 years. Actually, this is the 60th anniversary, 1962, the first Koran Tanakh came out. So 2022, we're going to have lots of events celebrating 60 years of the Koran Tanakh, which was really groundbreaking in many ways. And over the past 60 years, we've developed a lot of supplementary material. And so we, for this edition, for these editions, we could draw on 60 years of material that we already had. Uh, in addition to new to new material that we commissioned, so there's uh, at the beginning of each book of the Bible, there's a timeline which shows you where this book fits in in the broader picture of the Bible. Um, there's uh, a subject division, you know, chapters uh, this through this are on are about A, or or it happens at this point. This takes you know this takes place for seven years. This place takes place for twenty years, uh, etc. So that's just very helpful. Uh, there are very short notes to help explain things that won't be obvious from the text. Like, I don't know if uh, someone's naming a child and therefore she named him uh, Simeon because God has heard me. So, you know, that, that doesn't make sense in English. So we have a note explaining the derivation in Hebrew. We also have in the back uh, maps, genealogies, uh, charts, uh, uh, layout of the, of the tabernacle of the temple pictures of uh, the priestly garments and, uh, you know, flora, fauna, archaeological discoveries, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, so as I said, the Hebrew Hebrew English edition has 60 pages of supplementary material in the back in full color. The English only, which is about to come out, uh, has 160 pages of material. And then we're putting out what we call the Hadar edition, which I think will only be in the large size. It's going to be three volumes, English, Hebrew, uh, one for the Torah, the prophets and the writings. That's the traditional Jewish division of the Tanakh. Uh, and then the fourth volume is uh, over 900 pages of supplementary material, which is really a, a, a guidebook to the connection between the, the 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 Bible and the land of Israel. And there is just unbelievable amounts of material Uh uh, that you know can guide you through let's say uh, biblical tours through israel uh routes that you can take what you'll see uh you know w- what's the archaeological findings what's the the biblical place where is it today um just basically any question you could ask is pretty much answered there uh so that's going to be an amazing addition the hebrew version of that uh, is about to come out. I just actually got an early copy today. It's right behind me on that desk. And uh, and my family was just ooing and eyeing over it uh, right before we started speaking.
0: How about we look at some examples of the English translation? Perhaps beginning with you, Jessica, would you tell us about one passage that is particularly dear or memorable to you?
2: So it's a difficult selection. I, I I'd like, if it's okay, I'd like to add um, something to what Ruben said at the beginning when we were talking about chutzpah and humility. It's because, you know, I, I the, the the fear and the chutzpah uh, come back to me every time I um, come to talk about translation choices and so on. I, I, I wanted to add a word about the tradition that we are part of, because I... I, I, I the history of scriptural translation is extremely fraught in the church uh, for very, very uh, understandable reasons. But I think it's important to say that the history of synagogue translation, which is what we're joining, is uh, is a little different and probably a sort of quieter history that goes right back to the beginning of the synagogue and the well, certainly the early days of the synagogue and sort of the first century in the land of Israel when when. Hebrew was still an active language in, in, in different contexts. But when not everybody in the synagogue could understand the scriptural reading, there, from, from that early beginning, there was an, almost a simultaneous translation going on in the synagogue where the, 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 the scriptural portion would be read, the reader would stop at the end of the verse, And somebody would stand up and improvise an explanatory Aramaic translation so that everybody was accessing it. And not many. There are communities that preserve that tradition, not many. Um, But that um, that sort of essential situation whereby the Hebrew is always present in front of us and we're always using it. And in every Orthodox synagogue around the world, the Hebrew text is being used in the in the reading and in the prayer, um, and, and and access to uh, Hebrew education is one of the you know the obligations of the community to provide. Um, so the translation is always there, but it never replaces the Hebrew. It's never there's the 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 the, 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 the what we produce at Korin, the facing page editions that Ravon was describing where you've got the Hebrew text there and that's what's being used publicly in the the synagogue Um, and next to it is a translation that is every person is using as they see fit to access the Hebrew Um, that that's the tradition that we're joining in a way it makes it 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 makes it less contentious and difficult for us there's no uh, authority questions here we're not we're not standing in the way of the Hebrew and we have a lot of very Educated, engaged readers who will confront us and question us, and and um, complain to us, and 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 question our translations, which is a, a joy. Um, at the same time, we belong to a tradition, and this is again, I think, I think this is something that all Jews can agree on. While we can't agree in any given passage and how it is to be understood, it's absolutely fundamental that we all agree that. It bears multiple tran- multiple understandings, multiple interpretations that's, that's fundamental to every sermon that the text can be interpreted more than one way. so we you know many of our readers will not be uh, engaging in that way a uh, critical way. Um, they won't be pulling apart the translation. We were translating more thinking of the sort of in inverted commas the innocent reader who is reading the, the translation straight as it comes to try and access the the um the text and experience the text not thinking too critically but they're not naive they know that we are one of many they know that we um that every any given interpretation that we've put down here is one of many and we are adding so that that's that's what gives us i suppose the chutzpah and the courage because you know is it coming from that tradition of, of multiple readings and of always looking for more understandings. You know, as a translator, you have to sit down and try and say, what is, what is the truest interpretation of this text? So we try and do that, but we would express it as, you know, what is closest to the simple meaning of this text? But we come from a, a, a tradition that is always looking for more, always looking, and it can be taught to us as a translator to choose a word, knowing that, by choosing this i'm excluding so many others that i could have chosen um, and and what enables us to do that is that is that we know we're not we're not excluding them they're still there on the shelf they're still there to be discovered by other people um, and so we come to it to try and contribute what we've got as part of a tradition that is always adding to itself so That's by way of apology Um, before I answer your question. I I, I think that all of us were very, very immersed in the books that we were translating. They were very alive for for all of us. And I think one of the things that Ruben uh, tried to do was not only choose the right translator, but choose the right translator for each book. So we were were very, very engaged with what we were doing. But my mind went to the Song of Songs, It's one of the earliest books are translated. Um, Again, as an Orthodox community, we have a certain um, there's a certain anxiety around the Song of Songs, and often we we privilege or have privileged the um, allegorical readings, and there are even biblical translations there, but don't give a straight translation of the Song of Songs. They only give an allegorical interpretation. And it was very, very clear to us from the, from the start that we were not going that way. Um, even the medieval commentators who will always um, translate allegorically, they're clearly engaging with the what would, the simple text, the plain text, because the power of the allegory comes from the comes, comes from the plain text. you know the, 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 there is no you know so it was clear to us not only are we going to translate it straight as it is as a set of love songs. But we're going to m- translate it with as much as we can convey of the beauty of it and the lyricism and the passion, um, you know, within, you know, while trying to, to, uh, you know, with the, the the modesty that is required of us and and all of this. And um, so, uh, my, my mind went to a small example, which is an example of you know discussion of one letter. There's a, in, in, a I'll read the text, um, chapter eight, verse six. Um, <speaking in Hebrew> which the, the plainest translation would be: "Place me like a seal on your heart, like a seal on your arm." Now, as as Orthodox Jews reading this, the mind immediately goes to Deuteronomy six. Um, which we read every day in the, in the Shema it says, let these words uh, be upon your heart. And then it goes on and it says, bind them as a sign upon your hand, have them as an emblem between your eyes, as we've translated it. Um, and, and in, in, in practice, you know, as I say, we say it every day and we, and we practice it And the men uh, wear phylacteries, which is how we understand that text in Deuteronomy. So the, that, that the, having have me on your heart and on your arm, uh, to my mind, immediately takes me there to the phylacteries to the tefillin. Um, I cannot say with any certainty that that is the intention of the text there in its original. The original intention of the text, you know, I, I the words are not the same words. Arm, hand. Um, so I, I can't say that with certainty. We know we have evidence of very, very. there's a very, very early practice, where phylactery is very similar to what what Riven was today. But um, but um, but I can't say with certainty that that's for the text. So I, as a translator, I've got to decide now: am I going to translate this absolutely straight, without intervening? In which case, the possible reference there will be diluted because the. The, when you read the Hebrew text as you're conversant with it, it's it, it it's a the the references are constantly alive. The, the cross biblical references are constantly active in your mind. In in English, you know English, there's much more English, and it is diluted down. Those references are diluted. So I, my fear is I can translate it absolutely straight without pushing this the text in any direction, and then that avenue will be lost. Or I can push it a little bit further and risk putting something in there that isn't there. Now, you, usually we would take the first option because we don't, we don't have that much chutzpah. We don't want to add, you know, we want to leave that to footnotes and commentaries and study. So this was an example of, a, a, an unusual example of a, a sort of a conscious you know, as I was struggling with this text, a, a conscious sort of intrusion of life into the work because, I, it, you know, a, a brave decision had been made to um, have, as a translator for this text, you know, a young, at the time, unmarried woman, I mean, relatively young, not, not young to be an unmarried woman in the Orthodox world, but, uh, I, I, it, you know, it was, a, it was a brave choice on, on the part of Matthew Miller. Um, and I was sitting, um, you know, somebody quite close to the perspective of this voice, um, which is, you know, of a young woman. Um, and I and I, I felt my hardship and the hardship of my, uh, you know, fellow travellers in this uh, in this uh, in this world and on this on this search. You know, the 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 phylacteries that fill in today in Orthodox life, they very much belong to the. Um, the ritual side, the unheroic side of religious life. You get up in the morning and get up early and there's this list of things you have to do before you have breakfast. It's not very heroic. It's not very, you know, it's this sort of, in the orthodox world, the in a quite a male symbol, but it doesn't have that uh, machismo, shall we say. And there was a part of me that wanted for my, uh, you know, my, my friends along the way, I wanted to show them that this, uh, this young female poet thousands of years ago saw their ritual and saw the passion in it to the extent that when she addressed her beloved, she, she said, you know, apply this is the passion that I want you to show me. And as we read it allegorically, we read it back the other way. You know, this, this passion that they have for one another is the passion that we're expected to turn towards God through ritual. Um. And I, I didn't want that to be lost. So that that's, a, that's in that case, you know, it's a question, you know, we struggle over the difference between the word A and the word V. Um, and uh, and this time I let the V win, so I translated. Set me like a seal upon your heart, like the seal upon your arm. For love is as powerful as death itself and jealousy unyielding as Sheol. It burns with sparks of fire with the Lord's own flame. Great waters cannot quench love nor torrents sweep it by.
0: Wow, that was beautiful. Well, Reuven, you have a tough act to follow now.
1: Very hard act. So uh, fortunately for me, um, I'm not going to talk about something I translated because I wasn't one of the translators, Jessica was. And so you can see the amount of thought and passion and vision that went in and 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 religious uh inspiration that went in to you know a, uh, the a seal upon your arm or the seal upon, or the seal upon your arm so um so i'm gonna talk about uh something that uh Sachs translated uh one of the interesting things was you know when you're translating as jessica said there's there's um, in any translation, there's more than one correct way to translate. Uh, in uh, in the Jewish interpretation, uh, the, there was a professor Yaakov uh, Elman who coined the term. I think he coined it, uh, omnisignificance, that you know every word has has infinite meaning within it, and that the goal of interpretation is often not to find the correct interpretation, but all the potential interpretations. And uh, but when you're translating. You, you know, you have to choose one. And so how are you going to choose it? Um, so our translators kept notes uh, that weren't meant for publication. They were meant for the next people in the stages, the literary editors, the, the scholarly editors, to justify their decisions, to say, you know, I'm aware that this can be translated the following way, but I chose to translate it this way for the following reasons. Um, and Rabbi Sachs also left some notes like that you know, the, to show that he was aware of the other possibilities. So one of them is in uh, one, a very interesting one, which, which shows uh, the kinds of choices he was making, is in uh, Exodus chapter one, verse 15. Uh, Pharaoh commands the midwives to uh, kill the, the Jewish boys who were born, uh, and they disobey. Now, the term in Hebrew is, um, let me find it, La uh, So the king of Egypt told the Miyaldot Ivriot. Now Miyaldot means midwives and ivriot means Hebrew but what are the connecting words? So there are two ways to understand it. One is he told the Hebrew midwives or he told the midwives of the Hebrews. What's the difference? According to the first interpretation the midwives were themselves Jewish or or Hebrew, Israelite. Um, Jewish is a little bit of an anachronistic term. Um, So, And that's the interpretation that appears in the Talmud. Uh, That's the interpretation that appears in the majority of Jewish interpreters. Uh, In fact, there's a Midrashic tradition that these two midwives, Shifra and Puah, were really Yochebed and Miriam. Yochebed, the mother of Moses, and Miriam, the sister of Moses. So if they're Jewish midwives or Hebrew midwives, it's understandable why they disobeyed Pharaoh. Um, It's not so understandable why Pharaoh would expect them to to do this. Um, So there's a minority opinion within the Jewish tradition and Rabbi Sachs quoted here four different opinions, uh, four different people who supported it, um, that they were the midwives of the Hebrews and they themselves were not Hebrews, which makes sense that Pharaoh would ask Egyptian midwives to kill the, the Hebrew babies. And so Rabbi Sachs quotes in his footnote uh, that he's following the minority opinion, which I think first appears in Josephus, who's first century interpreter. Uh, And then uh, the most famous proponent of it is uh, the Abarbanel, who is uh, 15th century Spain, Italy, Portugal. He moved around. Unfortunately, he was thrown out of, you know, this is the uh, time of the Spanish expulsion. Um, But he was one of the great the great Jewish uh, biblical interpreters of all time. Uh, and even, and he also quotes two 19th century interpreters, Malbim and Shadal. Um, Malbim from Eastern Europe, Shadal from Italy, uh, all of them adopted this minority opinion, and they adopted it on linguistic grounds. And Rabbi Sachs, I think, preferred this one not on linguistic grounds, but on moral grounds. Uh, he wanted to show that, you know. For, for, for Hebrew midwives to disobey makes sense. But for Egyptian midwives to disobey shows that uh, just like the daughter of Pharaoh who wasn't Jewish was involved in the salvation of, of the Jewish people because she was a moral person and found a baby and saved him and raised him. And she probably had an idea of who he really was. I mean, she called a Hebrew uh, nursemaid uh, to nurse the baby um, who turned out to be his mother. But um, so he wanted to say that, you know, whereas, you know, maybe uh, holiness is not expected of everyone, but morality, basic morality is expected of everyone. And these two midwives were the first example of civil disobedience that we find in the Bible. I mean, imagine, I mean, Pharaoh, well, I, don't, I don't think we have an equivalent today of, of, of an all-powerful autocrat like Pharaoh. Don't know, maybe North Korea. I don't know. But uh, but and and Pharaoh tells you to do something and they disobeyed because they feared God. That's what the Bible says. They, they feared God. And what does fearing God mean? It means that they that they were moral human beings. That's what God fearingness means in that context. So Rabbi Sachs, he you know, he had to choose one of the two interpretations. He was aware of both and he chose the minority interpretation because it was important. It's an important message for today and what's expected of everyone.
0: This fine edition of the Tanakh is also called the Magerman edition. Would you explain that label for us?
1: Sorry. Yeah. Um, the, well, you know, it required uh, chutzpah and humility on our part, but it required a kind of uh, madness and devotion on the part of the donors who sponsored this edition, uh, David and Deborah Magerman um who i believe they're from philadelphia in in the states um and they were really taken by this vision you know the our publisher matthew miller met with them and said we want to undertake a very ambitious and perhaps foolhardy uh undertaking but we have rabbi Sachs on board and these are the reasons we want to do it and it's going to be a huge project as it turned out to be and we want to do it to the highest possible standards which means we want to hire the best people have a big staff, don't skimp on anything. And uh, they said, okay, we're with you. We're, we're going to underwrite this. So we have a lot to thank them for.
0: All right. So where can listeners get this Tanakh? Uh,
1: the easiest place is go to Karin's website, KarinPub.com. Uh, if we have the, that, that's you know, a worldwide website. Uh, if you're in Israel, you can go to KarinPub.co.il. Uh, but uh, that's the easiest place to buy it. It's also available in uh, bookstores. It's available you know on on that that big uh, website that sells a lot of things, which we won't name. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's widely available. It's right now, the Hebrew English edition is what's available. Very soon, the English only edition will be available. and going to print in the summer will be that mega four volume edition that I was speaking about before.
0: Ruvain and Jessica, thank you so much for being with us on the show. It was a delight getting to know you and hearing about the Koran Tanakh.
1: Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us.
0: Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.